0: Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's interview is with Simon Chen, who is a pathologist located in California, somewhere. What happened with Simon Chen that brought him to my attention, well, besides Keiko and Boston, my wonderful Twitter ally, is that he had a very negative response to a particular article that was written or published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this particular article is like so many articles that I've read and broken down and seen about, where a white person... Goes on a tirade about all of their guilt and all of their microaggressions and their micro racisms, and they, they vest themselves of all of these iniquities that are due somehow to their privileged status as a white person. I'm not going to read that article. The article will be linked in the description and it's paid walled, but it's just the same article. It's the same story that's being regurgitated over and over and over and over again. This thing is fiction. Right? It's confession. And the thing about this particular confession is that it has consequences. When this narrative is implemented, where this guilt by, I guess, historical association, is implemented across society, it has very negative effects. And that's why Simon Chen started to speak up. Because what he saw was the same exact rhetoric and even structure of, not it's not an argument, but structure of narrative that he and his family experienced during the Cultural Revolution in China. And so, this discussion is about his family's experience of the Cultural Revolution, which was, you know, instigated by Chairman Mao over the 50s and the 60s, and then had consequences for China on a cultural level, on a social level, on an economic level, up to this present day. And we use that to step off and branch into conceptions of racism which is a very hot topic, and again, a topic that I think that people need to learn how to not argue about, and I don't mean to denigrate people's experience of racism, but I do need to point out that there are ways of solving this problem that are, in fact, not solutions, but ways of magnifying this problem. And a lot of the rhetoric I see out there in the wild of civilization is, in fact, this Marxist-ish sort of oppressor-oppressive dynamic I'm going to get out of the way. Here is Simon Chen.
1: My maternal grandpa was killed during the Cultural Revolution um, in 1966. The, the confession that he signed before they, you know, they killed him. Like parallel the structure of it, like parallel, almost exactly. Oh, parallel. This New England Journal of Medicine opinion piece, almost exactly, and that's the reason why I found um, this opinion piece to be. Really troubling, right? Really morally and ethically troubling from from this historical perspective
0: that I have. And how did it mirror that? Did it start with like these non non racist acts that just slowly got bigger and bigger, or like these very small uh, iniquities that grew larger and larger? That it, it did seem like this woman who wrote this article and your father was trying to look for something. That was bad. That they could be guilty of Is exactly, that what yeah. It
1: was? It's the same. It's the same logical structure, right? So um, let me give you some context, right? So, so China in the late 1950s and early 1960s was in a lot of socioeconomic economic chaos. Because Chairman Mao instigated all these utopian hmm. social economic reform policies, which ended up uh, starving or killing like tens of millions of people, right? And so actually, because of that, he actually lost a lot of power. He lost a lot of political power in 1959 because his credibility got destroyed, right? So he, he actually lost his chairmanship in 1959. But he still had a lot a lot of unofficial political influence, right? And, um, and by the early to mid-1960s, he wanted that political power back. So what the Cultural Revolution was about was that he basically publishes opinion piece calling upon the um, the youth of China, right, to mobilize against the political leaders in power, and also um, all the intellectuals, all the all the other people, persons of influence in Chinese society, right, as a cultural revolution. To basically restore the communist revolution. although as you can see, that's basically it's basically a play for him to get back to political power, right? And he leveraged his political influence and reputation as basically the communist liberator of China from feudalism to instigate like tens and hundreds of millions of these like red guards. They're mm-hmm. basically social justice warriors of Maoist China, right? Because they were all basically brainwashed under the communist education system. The police, the military couldn't do anything because Mao told them not to do anything. In fact, Mao told them to hand over the AK 47s to these Red Guards um, to do whatever they wanted, right? So my grandpa was working. Uh, my grandpa was working for a, as a researcher. He was a um, he was a very educated man. He was a researcher for this aeronautical aviation um, intelligence research institute, right? So actually, what happened was that before the cultural revolution, he he made a remark to a colleague in the bathroom that um, that he he thought Mao was a dictator, right? And then. By the time 1966 came around, right when the Cultural Revolution came around, when you know all the Red Guards are just running amok on the streets, um, just arresting people who they thought were capitalist oppressors, right? My grandpa's colleague basically wanted his job, and so my grandpa's colleague denounced him as a um, as a counterrevolutionary who who um, who called Mao a dictator. Well, that's a quite allegation, but and he denounced them. So it's like to the prison of my grandpa, right? regarding right and the police's and background investigation, they actually found out that um, he's a capitalist class. He's a capitalist ca- class sympathizer because uh, most, he was actually born. He was born to a very rich uh, family. Of um, his dad was a was a was a pharmacist and a merchant who um, was very very rich. Most of the family his family like fled to Taiwan before uh, the communists took over China, right? So because of his family background, because of the fact that everybody else in his family is a quote unquote stinking capitalist, right? He was ultimately accused of capitalist class sympathies, right? And so not only was it not only was he this this, this despicable um, counter-revolutionary who denounced the leader of the communist revolution, but he was also a capitalist class sympathizer who shared ideas of the capitalist who wanted to stop the revolution. Right. Mm-hmm. So they forced them to sign a confession where basically it's it the same structure as as this as this opinion piece in that we read. We were only told of the content of what. What it, ha- what it was. So basically, he just, he said, I'm part of a capitalist class, right? And then, he brought up all these examples of supposedly capitalist class behavior. For example, he would hoard sausages. China was very poor, but because he lived in Beijing and because he worked for a, for a very important governmental research institution, right? He got special privileges in terms of food. So he was so they could buy like pork sausages, like things were rationed in China too, right, yeah. so it wasn't like you can buy like a whole box of pork sausages uh, at once, right so they're saving it up, they're saving it up for my mom. My mom was like you know my mom was a taller right, and she she liked them, so they were saving it up for my mom, and that was used as a example of capitalist hoarding and speculation behavior right Oh
0: huh. yeah, never heard of speculation and, behavior
1: like so yeah so like so like so like they could sell them for a he, higher
0: price later on,
1: yeah, exactly, like on the black market, right huh. um, which is totally absurd, yeah, and so basically it was a list of behaviors that supposedly made him a capitalist sympathizer right in the context of him belonging to a capitalist oppressor group and the oppressed being being the peasants and the working class mm hmm and basically after he signed that, conf- well, after he made that confession, right, um, they, they dragged him out onto a railroad, railroad track outside of Beijing and then uh, tied them down and, uh, left them to die under a running train. And, um, you know, we, we never got a body back. Um, and afterwards, Mike, um, uh, my, his whole family, so my, so my mom and my grandma were both exiled out of Beijing back to where my grandma was originally from um, and now it's at and so this and then there you know that's only that's only like 20% of the story there you know it's caused a lot it's caused so much trauma and pain for my family that there's there's still many aspects of it that I can't ask them about mm-hmm. yeah. I try to I can't I can't I can't ask them about it but it is what it is and hmm. it's a it's a devastate it's just it's just devastating and a lot of people a lot of other people suffer similar things
0: yeah millions of people suffered right under that um i'd right. like to hear the rest of like the the story with what happened with the red guard but, right. but i have a question about yes sir um or more of a statement about how now, with this article in the New right. England Journal of Medicine, that capitalist evil class is now uh, construed into being whiteness. Whiteness right. is the new capitalist oppressor. And Absolutely. it feels much more pernicious because with a capitalist, you can say, did they take the goods and sell the goods? With right. whiteness, you just look at like the basic color of somebody's skin so basically everybody who has this going on with them right. is now part of this capitalist class who's uh, who's uh, participating in in your oppression and which is
1: to... totally absurd which is totally absurd right i totally agree with you Ben. it's it's this and it's such a striking historical parallel
0: hmm at the same time, there's not, it doesn't rise out of the same sort of economic disparity. It actually rises out of economic prosperity. It's coming, uh, it's coming to fruition in the midst of a capitalist society who, yeah, right. we lose a lot of money. We gain a lot of money. We're not as rich as we used to be, but we're nowhere near China in the 50s. Not at all. What's right. So right. that's the weird part of it for me. That right. It's so, strange, why is this right? coming back? what is this really serving? And and I guess the only answer is very uh, either controversial or conspiracy theorist, but...
1: It's so strange. It's so palpably absurd and strange. And, you know, somebody who hadn't even paid attention to any of these cultural war issues before last year is... Especially for me, right? Especially for me as somebody who just... I don't see people as exemplars of their race or avatars of their race. It's just... Really strange that you can categorize people into a racial oppressor class. Mm-hmm. So that's just like so detached from my own experience as a immigrant to North America, as somebody who. When did you move? Did medical, um, so I moved to Canada in nine nine nine. Okay. And then I moved to America. Um, I moved to America in twenty twenty twelve. And so I did medical school. I did medical school in Missouri, where you know we got a lot of patients. We I, I I did medical school at a major referral hospital, where we got a lot of patients from not only inner city St. Louis, but also from this you know rural Missouri, Illinois, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, um, and a lot of these rural patients were Caucasian by race, right? Mm. And economically, they were not doing well. For me, it's just really absurd that even if you can bend people into... Let's just say that you, even if you can bend people into racial groups, that white people are the, the quote-unquote oppressor class.
0: Why do you think like that it's so? people are so susceptible to this way of thinking, though? And I want to make a sub-note because... Right. Um, I've heard uh, both Jewish people and Asian people as uh, called the model minorities, which means that you're one step removed from the whiteness uh, oppressor. What what do you think about that, about um, this weird slippage from the whites who are oppressing everybody to anybody or any race who is getting ahead of anybody else? And it seems like a a resentment, a resentment against prosperity or opportunity even.
1: Yeah, I think I think you have a point in terms of the resentment. Um, you know, I personally like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um yeah. it could be resentment. Could be something else. I don't know. Um but yeah, it's is just so weird. It's just is this creepy that people would frame everything in terms of this identity groups, right? Uh like the model I find the model minority concept to be so toxic and so So you've
0: come across that.
1: I have come across that I think I think, first of all, I think it's a false concept. I grew up in a working-class immigrant family myself, immigrant household myself, and I knew a lot of, you know, ethnic Chinese immigrants in um, in Canada where I grew up who were like really poor. They were they were on food stamps. They were on social assistance, and that just totally belies the notion of bending Asian. People into a category where they're Mm. supposedly all economically very privileged like that Mm -hmm. has absolutely zero relation to my own lived experience as a immigrant, as a as a Asian immigrant, as a Chinese immigrant in North America. Getting back to your original question, right? I think racism is a individual uh, moral catastrophe where people are not open-minded enough, people would rush to conclusions, they would take the worst uh, 1% of a bell curve of behavior of a given quote-unquote identity group and then use that worst 1% tail end of a bell curve to to extrapolate and to make it representative of the whole group. And also I think um, self-deception, right, Uh, in terms of, um, being unable to challenge um, your your prior conceptions of people of a given race or ethnic group. So basically, people not being open-minded enough, people extrapolating too much, and people who deceive themselves with respect to their prior uh, misconceptions, I think, form the core basis for uh, the individual um more problem of racism
0: yeah but this this form of racism this form of white guilt of uh, right. uh of like racist um like it, it's a racist target uh inversion where you say exactly. i am i am the racist it goes through like this loop-de-loop of looking at large structures of why is this right. group over here worse off than this group over here And and you collapse this very incredibly complex social and historical apparatus into Mm -hmm. white people taking away from this other group. Well, I I should try to just like whitewash the whole thing and say uh, group X takes away from group Y because I'm in group X and I have all this stuff. I I can't actually give anything back to these people because they're so disadvantaged on a historical, grand, structural level, that all I can really do, all that's really left for me to do to correct this uh-huh. disparity, this inequality, this unfairness is to flagellate myself in front of everybody. Right. Just divest myself of pride, which right. it's not the same as like going and serving this community. It's more self-serving uh-huh. because it just makes I you feel agree. than actually serving. Uh, and that's that's the weird trick that, that's being played. I
1: absolutely agree with you. And that's why I think... Um, the whole concept of white guilt, which um, as a racial minority myself, I, I think this is this is just confusing and absurd. It does nothing to serve the interests of ethnic minorities, because fundamentally, right? Fundamentally, hmm. by portraying the problem of the dual problems of racism and and um, and existing group level. Inequality to portray that in a frame of a oppressor oppressed relationship doesn't make sense because because racism I think is a moral is an individual yeah, moral individual issue, that.
0: moral thing. What happened with the red guard? Basically, they,
1: they devoured themselves. They, they, they develop themselves in the sense that you got all these red guards, aka the social justice warriors of Mao's China, right, um, running after everybody that they think are um, are oppressor classes. And so they eliminated all the intellectuals. They they, they shut down all the um, all the institutions of higher education and in China the medicine, in the 1960s,
0: right? And anybody who is prosperous,
1: right? Anybody who's like intellectual or prosperous or came from a prosperous um, background—it's a monster, right? They el- eliminated all these people they were originally going after, and then who else were left, right? They were the police, the army, and themselves. Some major cities like Beijing or Shanghai were spared from this second part of the cultural revolution, but a lot of other parts of China were consumed in a violent civil war oh, among man. the Red Guards and the army. Huh. Where, you know, the army, the army had to protect themselves from from these mobs, right? Because these mobs are accusing the army of, you know, not partaking in their revolution and, and therefore they're count if, if you're not with us, you're you're against us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a mentality,
0: right? And 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 to go back just a little bit, the army was told not to interfere. Right. But the they weren't told was... to to participate.
1: exactly you're exactly right. You're exactly right. So the army was not given any orders to to actively assist the Red Guard per se. But they were told to step back and not do anything, and to give the basically to give the keys to of to the armories to these red guards because, obviously, these red guards needed more than pitchforks and knives for their for their revolution, right? And so and so you got a civil war between the red guards and the army. You also got civil war be- among the red guards themselves because now you got these factions among the red guards that are accusing one another of not being revolutionary enough you see how powerfully absurd this becomes right it's It's a vicious cycle right it's 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 so tragic and so it's so tragic vicious and absurd and so you see how this movement just devours itself right Hmm. um so by the late 1960s uh you know even Mao realized that this was going out of control right now that he's secured political power he's Back at the highest position in China, not not formally as chairman, but, you know, he basically took, took took the country back, right, for himself. You know, even he realized, even a tyrant like him realized how absurd this whole situation was, right? Uh, it was then he, he issued an order to the army. He issued an official order to the army to basically put this revolution, cultural revolution down as a counter-revolutionary act.
0: Once the Cultural Revolution had done his work for him, he right. he de- he decimated it, cut off its head. He, yes, yeah, it's, it's so cynical, so cynical, right? Hmm. And the, yeah. where where's your family at this point then?
1: So my mom's family got exiled to um, yeah, where you know my grandma originally grew up. My grandma ironically worked as a social studies teacher, hmm. um, politics teacher. Um, at a high school that she was working at. So basically Mao died in 1976. Um, and after the death of Mao, um, people in China basically began this, um, I would say, half-hearted or, or quarter-hearted attempt at rectifying the damages of the Cultural Revolution. Hmm. My mom was given an opportunity to um, come back to Beijing to that same um, uh, institute where my where my grandpa, who was murdered um, had worked at, um, and she was given a, another job there as as, rep- as like a reparation, right um, interesting. And now's that, that and so everything settled down. We know the guy who denounced um, my grandpa and like um,
0: hmm.
1: like he never really crossed our mind like the last time we heard about him like several years ago, like he was still alive, but you know obviously there's no way to bring justice. Um, which I think is unfortunate, Hmm. you know, like the guy, the guy who basically contributed to my, to my grandpa's murder, got his job and is now like scot-free, right? Um, but it is what it is, right? And like, that's Hmm. why, you know, still.
0: Was there any chance to confront him or any member of your family went and talked to him or spoke with him?
1: No, because for as far as we're concerned, uh, we just want to move on. We mm-hmm. we want to move on, and there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, in the absence of a officially sanctioned method to bring him, to to hold him accountable, right? Like, what's the point?
0: Mm-hmm. And what prompted your family's move to Canada then?
1: Um, because my parents witnessed the um, the Camden Square massacre in 1989. Um, and then it was at that point that I realized that China was not a, it didn't have a viable political system to allow for a, for a viable, um, country for people like me to grow up in without being corrupted by the mid 1990s. We, um, we were applying for immigration to, um, australia new zealand but that fell through and we ended up immigrating to canada hmm.
0: how big is your yeah. family uh, your immediate
1: uh family? i'm the only child so, so this okay. is my parents and myself
0: wow and then uh did your parents in the transition from china to canada did they have to completely relearn their careers and reorganize their lives or were there was there some continuity between the, their work in china and what they ended up doing in canada
1: my dad was very fortunate that he basically got a he basically got a job in Canada in the same company, which is miraculous. And how um, did
0: you end up in uh, America then? Just you followed your studies. You for, followed for medical your... school. Yeah,
1: for medical school. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and what kind of medicine do you practice now? Or?
1: Uh, I do pathology.
0: Okay, so you yeah. you learn where things are wrong. <laughs>
1: Exactly. I learn. I learn about. And you point them out. You mom. say, "This
0: is the problem."
1: <laughs> exactly. You got it. Uh, exactly right. Both somatic and, I guess, now also psychosocial.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's very interesting. One aspect of this story that's very mm-hmm. interesting, and I, I'm incredibly moved by your family's story. That's um, it's very emotional for me. But um, one of the things that's weird is that. Mm-hmm. Th- I guess this is implicitly racist, but China as a whole is much more homogenous than America is. Um, And by that, I mean that there's so many different ways for this way of thinking to fracture the relationship between people in America than right. there were in China. But I'm sure that there's a lot of different clans or, or different um, ethnicities and sub within China. But the way that China was broken apart by a bad actor, being Mao, was along mm-hmm. like a socioeconomic framework. That's what right. how it was shattered. America is much more vulnerable to that right. um, because we have all these different ways of... Identifying and, and putting stress on right. identity. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see multiculturalism working where people can maintain their differences and converge on similarities and and harmony can can happen within uh, between all these different races and classes and genders and all this other stuff.
1: Just treat people as individuals. You know, just don't reduce individuals. Down into hmm. exemplars or avatars of whatever identity group that suits people's fancy, right? Because there's a lot greater intra group variation than there is intergroup variation, right? So if mm-hmm. you if you you know, if you represent each group along some axis of behavior or whatever, right, on a bell curve. Then all the bell curves for the different groups are going to extensively overlap. So then, you know, I think about things very mathematically, right? Because I, you know, my my undergrad background is in chemistry in the mm-hmm. physical sciences, right? I think about things logically, let's say, which I don't think it's a common attribute among the social activists. Um, yeah, but like, you know, if if people if you can. Bend people even if we can bend people into identity groups and but you'll find out that these people in identity groups are a lot more diverse mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. the groups are different from one okay. one another you realize you know yeah. you can't you can't generalize people right
0: so what, what you're basically saying is that within any given identity group there's more diversity between the individuals in that group than between any other identity group no no matter right. what axis of identity you use there's always Absolutely. going to be a lot more difference because the complexity right. of the individual is is much more right. paramount paramount than any way that we categorize that that individual
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think. I think that's. A, I think that's a very reasonable postulate. Um, that postulate definitely has been a hundred percent consistent with everything that I have seen in my life. Um, you know, again, like I, you know, something I said on Twitter is that, uh, like, racism is a individual uh, moral catastrophe that can affect uh, like people of any skin color, right? Um, and in fact, I think. Reducing racism to a problem of white versus black does a horrible disservice to, uh, in our fight against racism because it fails. It simply fails to address the problem of racism among people who anybody who's uh, not Caucasian. That is so ignorant. I think it does a real disservice to um, to both our fight against racism, which yeah. um, I detest, and also to. To you know, achieve common, common you know, multiracial, multicultural understanding, yeah. as you know, co- a common understanding that racism is a abomination among all of us. Yeah, that we all need to put conscious, conscious individual effort into to um, fight against.
0: Mm-hmm. And right? the the weird the weird trick about making the white people the bad guy is that the white mm-hmm. people learn to be. He- uh, humble, uh, to, to, to consider things. They have to spend so much more extra, let's say, processing power on the social interaction that they get better and better as people. Like, it privileges them in this weird way by breaking them yeah. down. It puts, puts them under more stress, forcing right. them to be better people, and then giving everybody else the ability to not really grow in that way. It's just this weird right. kind of um, privileging or re privileging right. of the person that's very again, it's very self serving at the same time right. as being self uh, flagellating.
1: Like, some people can't even believe it when I tell them that you know, I think America is a lot re- less racist as a country than China is because, uh, you know, China China's like vast majority of it are like Han Chinese, but there are you know, there are ethnic Tibetans, right, who live in Tibet and there are mm. ethnic Uyghurs who live in uh, the western part of China that's you know that you heard about concentration camps, right? Mm. Um, and no. there's a lot of them um, there's there's basically a network of concentration camps for uh, Muslim Uyghurs really? in um in right now. Like right now, right now, which is um, which is absolutely horrible, ridiculous, obscene and illegal, right? It helps to illustrate my point that there's a lot of racism in China and there are many Han Chinese racists who discriminate against um, visible minorities in China, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, basically, my point being is that if we see racism, you know, we, racism is both a national problem here and a global problem, right? And if we want to tackle racism as a global problem, then... Um, framing racism in the context of a Caucasian oppressor oppressed relationship it fails to address the palpable and the devastating racism that exists among people of other racial groups yeah. like in
0: China. Right? so the the best fight against racism isn't to turn the racism against yourself but to actually not be racist.
1: Exactly. And to actually
0: make connections with somebody of another race.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, just stop. First of all, like, just stop being an asshole, right? Stop being an asshole.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That's really, really hard for people. You have to understand. Apparently, yeah. (laughs) It's not easy. I mean, one, it's really difficult not to be an asshole. Um, Right. But secondly, it it takes a lot of um, education, nuance, patience, humility Mm -hmm. to not categorize people into stereotypes to really see the world as it is as a bunch of fractured complexities um right and that takes a lot of processing power or perhaps it doesn't take so much of this but more of this it takes more
1: exactly i agree with you both the heart and the mind right we have to open up our heart and hearts and minds And i think you know obviously as adults we can you know open up our um hearts and minds right but I think it's also really important for parents to model that behavior for their kids because like using my own, using myself as an example, right? Like my parents, like neither of my parents are, are like racists at all. You know, my own attitudes towards race is came about from their open mindedness. Yeah. Their open mindedness, their willingness to be nice to people from all races, all cultures, keep an open mind. Don't, hold historical animosities against other people everything i think ultimately happens should happen from you know childhood right i think as a society if we want to fight racism Hmm. as a problem over this century right which we have to do then we have to um start with by being good parents
0: yeah being role models like you're saying
1: exactly yeah
0: well, thanks a lot, Simon. What's next on your plate? Are you done with school? And do you have a practice now?
1: I'm uh, I'm still in training. I'm still okay. in training. But um, yeah, we'll see uh, where life takes me.
0: Okay. And afterwards. you say you're a pathologist. What, what kind yeah. of domain of pathology have you uh, specified in your studies? Or is it just you look where the problem is and you go there? So
1: pathology is a really broad field. Yeah. Um, and and there's different. There's so um, many
0: problems.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a lot of people, um, pathology used to be um, about doing autopsies on people.
0: Oh okay. Now
1: that, now that uh, autopsies are becoming more and more uncommon, uh, most of the work of a pathologist are either in processing uh, tumor tissue. From a operating room and diagnosing cancer and other diseases using surgical tissue or running a medical laboratory. Um, So the former is called surgical anatomic pathology and the latter is called clinical pathology. Mm -hmm. And and currently I see myself more in um, anatomic pathology. All
0: right. Poking at things, tissues, and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Processing tissues, cut them into microscope slides, look at them under a microscope, and diagnose people's uh, cancers or other diseases. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating stuff and Mm -hmm. a lot of work, I bet.
1: It is a lot of work, but I I love it. You know, I think, you know, you just got to find meaning in what you do.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thanks a lot, Simon. I'll let you know when this comes up and uh, keep on speaking out you're bringing a great perspective to the discourse it's really important i hope so too all right
1: all right have a good night bye yeah you too bye